if there were any uh, books of the New Testament which stand out as more important than any others, it, in, it would include three of the epistles of the New Testament. And if you have a limited time in which to get acquainted with the New Testament, I'd urge you to start with these three, because they're absolutely fundamental to understanding the rest of the New Testament. The book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, and the book of Hebrews. And as has been pointed out before, these three share a unique uh, matter in common in that they are all a New Testament commentary on a single Old Testament verse. Any of you know what it is? Yes, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. This is the verse that uh, struck a fire in the heart of Martin Luther, began the, the Protestant Revol uh, Reformation 450 years ago. It was a verse that, uh, that uh, opened the eyes of St. Augustine, or Augustine, and helped him to become the mighty man of faith and the champion of faith that he was, and it's still striking fire in many hearts today. And it's, it is expanded and amplified in these three books of the New Testament. And again, it's been pointed out quite accurately, I think, that um, each of these books emphasizes a different aspect of that brief statement. The book of Romans talks about the just, the justified. Those who have been accepted as righteous in Jesus Christ, the just shall live by faith. The book of Hebrew, uh, Ephesians emphasizes the word shall live. And it tells us how life as a justified person can occur. The walk in the spirit, the life in Jesus, the life of Christ in us. And therefore, its emphasis is on those two central words, the just shall live by faith. And, uh, of course, the book of Hebrews takes up the last two, by faith. And it shows us just how it is that we lay hold of the life by which we are justified. It's by faith. And the theme, therefore, of Hebrews is the word by faith. Hebrews focuses upon faith. But you know, I hope, that faith derives its value not from anything in itself, but from the object upon which it's fastened. This is a, a source of great confusion among many Christians, I find. People are always saying to me, oh, if I only had enough faith, I could do so and so and such and such. As though faith were a commodity sold by the pound. And all you need to do is buy another pound of faith and add it to the store you have now, and you could do great things for God. But uh, the quantity of faith is of very little significance. Jesus said so. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, he said, you can move mountains. It isn't quantity that's the important thing in faith. It's quality. It's what your faith is fastened to. What is the object of your faith? 
the the uh, uh, strength of faith is directly related to the strength and uh, trustworthiness of the object of your faith. What are you believing in? Who are you believing in? What kind of a person is he? And that's why when Hebrews talks about faith, therefore, it must help us to see the object of faith. Because our faith will be strong if we believe and understand that the object of our faith is strong. And that's why this is the most Christ-centered book in the New Testament. It focuses upon Jesus Christ. And it's one of the greatest books for hours of discouragement or defeat or depression that there is in the whole of the Bible. Because it focuses so upon the character and the qualities of Jesus Christ. If we see him as he is, we can't help but be strong in faith. Remember that story Dr. Ironside used to tell of the man who had just become a Christian and he was uh, experiencing some of the difficulties that new Christians often have of uh, becoming uh, uncertain in his faith, wondering if he really was a Christian, up and down experience, feeling frustrated with his own lack of growth and so on. And he felt he had come to the place where he felt that he was, he just couldn't stand any longer. He couldn't live as a Christian anymore. He came into a church service where the pastor was speaking on the verse in Hebrews that speaks of Christ as uh, seated at the right hand of the Father. or Not the verse in Hebrews, rather, but in Ephesians, which speaks of Christ as seated at the right hand of the Father. And that we're dead, and our life is hid with Christ in God. And that he's the head of the body, and we're the body, and he's the head, seated at the right hand of the Father. And uh, as the truth of this gripped this man's heart, and he realized that though he was struggling to swim against the current down here below, his head was seated in victory and triumph already at the right hand of God. And the truth gripped him, and he jumped out of his seat, and he said, Hallelujah! <laughs> Who ever heard of drowning with his head that high above water? <laughs> and that's what Hebrews does to us, I think. It helps us to focus upon the one who is already in the place of victory. As someone prayed tonight, we're fighting a battle already won. And that's what encourages us. When we walk in the flesh, we're fighting a battle already lost. No chance, no hope of victory. But when we walk in the Spirit, it's a battle already won. Now in this letter to Hebrews, chapters 1 through 10 are a very... Simple structure in which uh, Jesus Christ is being compared to a number of other leaders and systems and uh, uh, religious values that uh, these, these people to whom this letter was first written, these Hebrews, had once felt were important. It's almost like an athletic contest where certain contestants are vying for the championship. And this whole letter is very much like an elimination contest where one after the other is uh, takes on, challenges the hero 
and one after another he vanquishes them and emerges triumphant, superior to everyone else. And through this letter you will find Christ is compared with the basic things that uh, that men trust in in days of peril and trial and difficulty. And every one of them is found insufficient except him. The first one is the prophets of the Old Testament. The letter opens on that theme. God, who at sundry times, I'm quoting from the RSV, I, I mean the King James, I better get the RSV. In, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. These impressive writers of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, Hosea, Habakkuk. All these names that meant so much to a Hebrew mind and heart. These men who were far in the forefront of all the philosophies and philosophers the world has ever known. Who were contemporaries with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And yet whose views of reality far outstripped these men. These are great men, aren't they? The fathers. The prophets. And God spoke to them, through them in the past. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. And almost with a wave of the hand, the writer dismisses the prophets as having no equality with Jesus Christ. After all, they're just spokesmen, instruments. But he's the son. They are men. But he is God enthroned at the boundaries of the universe from time in past to time future, forming the boundaries of history and upholding everything by the word of his power. How can a, a prophet compare with someone like that? So he's much better than they, and therefore anybody who trusted in prophets ought to be interested in listening to Jesus Christ. That's his argument. The next champion to come forward, or challenger, are the angels. The angels. And in the Greek world, in which uh, the New Testament church found itself, the angels were regarded as very important beings. Most of the gods and goddesses that we are familiar with, with that come from the Greek world, you know, Venus and Zeus, and Mercury, that's not a car, that's a god back in those days. And uh, various other uh, uh, gods and goddesses were really, in the eyes of the Greeks, angels. They knew they were not supreme god. They were angels. But they were regarded as kind of god's junior grade, uh, sub-deities. And uh, they treated them as such. Well, now, the writer here takes up the question of which are greater, the angels or the sun? And he points out immediately that the sun, the Lord Jesus, is superior to any angel. He establishes, uh, establishes it with a word. At first, he says, to which of the angels did God ever say, thou art my son? No, no angel did he ever say that to. The sun is superior to the angels. And furthermore, the angels worship him. 
Therefore, they themselves admit that he's superior, and they obey him. This is the argument. So how could you ever compare an angel to the Son of God? Furthermore, he goes on to point out in chapter uh, 2 and 3 that, uh, that Jesus was the true man. He was the second Adam. He came to fulfill the destiny of human beings, the lost destiny which Adam threw away. The right of mankind to be rulers and kings in the universe. It's reflected in this eighth psalm. Remember how David cries and says, When I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him to be for a while lower than the angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor and have given all things to be in dominion, uh, given him to be in dominion over all things, and set him over the works of your hands. That's what man was made to do. And in our fallen state, that what we're still endeavoring to do, but we find it very difficult to achieve. But Jesus is there. And the writer says, we don't yet see man fulfilling his destiny, but we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. The true man, man as God intended man to be. And if he's that, then he's higher than the angels. Because God made man ultimately to be higher than the angels. He said of man, let us make him in our image. No angel had that ever said of him. And so in the midst of this argument about the angels, the, the writer of Hebrews, the unknown writer of Hebrews, I should add, because it's not certain just who wrote this book. I know, but nobody else agrees with me. <laughs> uh, the writer of Hebrews gives a warning. Now, there are five warnings through the book of Hebrews, and they're very instructive. And this is the first one. And the first warning is, don't neglect to listen to this one. If Jesus is higher than the prophets and higher than the angels, then you ought to listen to him. If the prophets have affected the stream of human history as much as they have, and the angels are the invisible agents of God working through all of history, then surely you ought to listen to the Son. Don't neglect to listen. That's what he said. You're, you fail to do so at your own peril. Now the next challenger who moves into the picture uh, is Moses and Joshua out of the Old Testament. These men, great men of God, whom God greatly used, whom the Hebrew people idolized almost, as the uh, supreme evidences of men mightily used of God, especially Moses. And in chapter 3, you have Jesus compared to Moses and to Joshua in chapter 4. And what's his argument? Well, very simple. Moses was a servant in the house of God. But Jesus is the son to whom the house belongs, for which it is built 
and you can easily see the superiority. I remember when I was a boy in Montana, I was invited to go uh, uh, to visit a ranch, a very well-known, wealthy ranch in our area, by the hired man. And I went out there first with him, and we uh, came out to this imposing ranch house, but uh, he didn't take me into the ranch house. He took me out to the bunkhouse out in back. And I asked him what it was like in the ranch house, and he said, well, I can't take you in there. He said, that belongs to the family. I saw a beautiful Palomino horse in the pasture, and I said, oh, I'd like to ride that horse. He said, I'm sorry, you can't. That belongs to the family. And all day long, I was frustrated because everything I wanted to do, he couldn't do because he was only the hired man. But later on, I got to know the son of that family, who was my own age. And he took me out to the ranch later. And you know what we did? We rode that Palomino horse all over the place. We went into the house. We even walked right in and opened the refrigerator and got into the refrigerator and took anything we out we wanted. We made ourselves perfectly at home because a son has greater liberty than a servant. And this is what proves that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was just a servant. He was the, he was the master. And Moses led the people of God out of Egypt into Canaan or towards the land of Canaan, which was a symbol of the rest of God, the rest which God wants people to learn to live on inside their hearts. As we'll learn later on in this letter, and it's hinted at even here in the beginning, the house of God, which this writer talks about, is man, is us. Moses was but a servant in the symbol of the house of God. Jesus is a son in the very house itself. And uh, Moses led toward a symbol of the rest of God. But Jesus leads actually into the place of rest. And that rest is defined for us in this letter, in chapter 4. It says, He who has ceased from his own labors has entered into rest. That is, if you stop depending on yourself and your self-effort, then you've learned to enter into rest because you start depending upon another, God's work in you. And that's the lost secret of humanity. That's the secret that Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden and which Jesus Christ came to restore to us. And when we learn to operate on that, we learn to be perfectly peaceful, calm, undisturbed by circumstances, trusting, powerful, effective, accomplishing things for Christ's sake. And that's rest. Now, Joshua couldn't lead into that rest, says the writer. He tried to, but he couldn't take the people into real rest. Oh, he took them into the symbol of rest, the land, but he didn't get them into real rest. But Jesus can. That's his argument. And therefore, he says, let us strive to enter into this rest, lest like these people in the wilderness, we fall away and lose out on what God has for us. And here comes the second warning of this letter. The second warning is, don't harden your heart and resist God's leading. Don't get to the place where you 
you say to yourself, well, I'm all right the way I am. I'm eating my Wheaties and doing okay. What do I need with anything further? No, don't harden your heart. Don't resist what God is saying. What you, you may be satisfied with the way you are now, but it won't last very long. Sooner or later, you'll find that what you've got now is not enough. And therefore, don't harden your heart, but let God lead you into his rest, or you're in serious trouble. Now, the next challenger to the superiority of Christ is Aaron the high priest of Israel, and the whole system of priesthood. Now, a great deal of this letter is made up of this subject of priesthood. And it's very important, because priests have great value. What do you think priests are for? Well, in the Old Testament, the priests were there to do two very important things. To relieve guilt and to relieve Confusion. It says so in chapter 4 of this letter, or verse five, uh, chapter 5, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's relief of guilt. To lift the load and the burden of guilt. And to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, those who are confused and are missed the path, don't know where to turn. Now you can see that the modern equivalent of a priest is perhaps the nearest thing in modern life is a psychiatrist. That's what the priests were for. They did what psychiatrists do today. They tried to relieve the load of guilt and to straighten out the confused and ignorant approaches of people to life. And therefore, they were very important. But now this writer goes on to show that Jesus Christ has a higher priesthood. And it's seen in this letter in the symbol of the Old Testament under the name of a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears in the Old Testament in a very mysterious way. He's a shadowy figure who steps out of the shadows for a moment and, and deals with Abraham and steps back into the obscurity and is never heard from again. But he's referred to several times in the Old Testament. And it's a figure of mystery until you come to the New Testament. And here in Hebrews, we're helped to see what this strange man signified. He was a picture, again, of the priesthood that Jesus Christ has today. And as a picture, he had several characteristics. And these were the characteristics now of the three of them, of the Melchizedek priesthood, which is what Christ has today. First, he was instantly available. The story was when Abraham was fighting the five kings, and he came down to meet the king of Sodom, and he was in trouble and didn't know it. Sodom was out to, the king of Sodom was out to, to, uh, uh, to offer him a very subtle offer that would have derailed Abraham in his walk of faith. And he couldn't possibly have detected 
the uh, subtlety of this offering. But Melchizedek suddenly appeared. He was instantly available. And furthermore, because he was a, uh, a being without father or without mother, that is, as far as the record goes in the Old Testament, he was a picture of Christ in his eternal relationship. He was permanently available. And furthermore, he actually strengthened Abraham. And Jesus Christ actually strengthens us, just as Melchizedek did with Abraham, by the offering of bread and wine, which, as you remember in the communion service, are the symbols of the body and the blood, the life of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's why Melchizedek appears in this book, because it's a picture of Jesus Christ, who is instantly available to us. I love to stress this truth, because I find so many people uh, want to depend upon me as a man for help. And there are times when I'm not available. Uh, I, I know it, it's unbelievable to some, but I have to sleep occasionally. <laughs> oh, I don't want to sound abused. I'm not. There have been times when I've been awakened in the middle of the night, and I don't mind it, really. But uh, there are times when I can't be reached. I'm on vacation, or I'm out of town, and I'm not available, and neither is anybody else. But this is why the glory of the priesthood of Christ is so intensely superior to anyone else. Your psychiatrist may go on vacation. He might even die. It's been known to happen. <laughs> but Jesus Christ never dies, and he's never off call or off duty. He's instantly available, and permanently so. And he actually strengthens you with the impartation of his own life Symbolized by the body and the blood, the bread and the wine. All right? That takes care of anybody who depends upon buildings or upon priesthood of any kind, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is infinitely superior to any earthly priesthood. Now, the next challenge to this, oh, by the way, in connection with that, there's another warning, a third warning. It's the danger of delay. And this is one of the most serious warnings in the book. It's the noted passage in Hebrews 6, uh, which you remember says that though we may have tasted the outward experiences of Christianity, but uh, and seem to have so much that's real about our Christian life, if we haven't pressed on into this place of rest and of trust in Jesus Christ, these external evidences of Christianity are no value to us. In fact, if that's all we've got, there'll come a time when they'll fail us, and then it's impossible to find the truth. That's a terrible warning. Chapter 6, that if you trust too long on the untrue, the unreal, the phony, There'll come a day when 
in desperation, you'll look for the true and you can't find it. Now the fifth one is the tabernacle and the law. Here are people, here are things that people trust in. Buildings and self-effort, which the law represents. The demand to, to by your will, by your, uh, activity, try to please God. And to do it in terms of a, of a building or a place or a location. And uh, the writer now compares Christ to this. And he says, he draws a sharp contrast. He takes the old tabernacle in the wilderness and he says, that's just a building, that's all. But the real tabernacle is a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. It's you. You're the one God's been aiming at for centuries. Not buildings. He does, he's not interested in buildings. That's why I think it's such a desperate error to refer to a building as the house of God today. To me, this is one of the most dastardly errors ever perpetrated upon people. It does untold damage. I like that story of the, of the little boy who was chewing gum in a church building. And some lady said to the pastor, look at that. Look at that boy chewing gum in church. Do you let children chew gum in the house of God? And he said, my dear lady, it's the house of God that's chewing the gum. (laughs) And he's exactly right. So the old tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem or a cathedral or a church is nothing but a building. The real house of God is you. We are his house. He dwells in us. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now, in connection with the tabernacle was the law. And the law made its demand upon people. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt uh, not uh, bow down to idols. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. And so on. All the Ten Commandments. And uh, these are wonderful But they fail, the writer says, because, as Paul says in Romans, because the weakness of the flesh. It's not able to meet the demands of the law. We find ourselves unable to come through with what the law demands. Even when we try our best, all we can achieve is an outward, external obedience. But the heart and the attitude within is frequently wrong, and we know it. Well, says the writer, the Lord Jesus has a solution to this. His solution is to write the law on your heart, to put the Spirit of God within you that keeps prompting you to love, and love is the fulfilling of the law. And if you yield yourself to the love of the, of the Spirit, which is pouring out from within you, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, you'll be automatically and unconsciously fulfilling the law. 
So he writes his law upon the hearts. He never leaves us. He deals fully with our guilt in those times when we do fail. He has already solved that problem in the cross. And he provides all the power we need to walk in righteousness if we'll take it. Well, can you beat that? The law never does that. All it does is demand. But it never enables. But Jesus comes in and demands and enables. He who has called, faithful is he who calls us, who also will do it. Now in connection with this is another warning. It's the warning, don't deceive yourself. Don't say you've got all this and put up a good front and a good pretense because that's presuming upon God. And if you do that, the writer says there will be left to you nothing but a a certain uh, end of evil. Let me quote the words to you here. Chapter 10. If we sin deliberately, that is, uh, deceitfully, and yet deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? Think of it. God has provided at infinite cost for us a way of being righteous before him, strengthened within, kept strong and pure in the midst of all the adverse circumstances around. And we set it aside and say, no, thank you, Lord. I'll make it on my own. Could anything be more insulting to God? And so he warns us against this. Don't presume on God's grace. Well, that eliminates buildings and it eliminates works. And it means that there are no challengers left. These are the things men depend on religiously. And so in the last section of the letter, he comes to the means of obtaining all that God has, which is faith. Only take me a moment on this. Even though it's a lengthy passage in Hebrews 11, you have what faith is and how it acts, how it looks, how to recognize it. And you read through that wonderful chapter of the heroes of faith and you'll find that faith anticipates the future, acts in the present, evaluates the past, dares to move out, and persists to the end. That's what faith is. And the last two chapters tell us how it's produced in our lives, how God goes about making us strong in faith. First, looking unto Jesus. You can't read about the Lord Jesus. You can't live with him and think of what God has revealed about him and believe these great declarations of his power and his might and his strength and his availability and his love and his concern without finding your faith strengthened. Isn't it true? 
You can look at all these other men of faith, Abraham and David and Moses and Barak and Samson and a whole host of others, Martin Luther and John Wesley and D.L. Moody, all these others, and all they'll do is inspire you. But they cannot enable you. But when you look at Jesus, he'll not only inspire you, but he'll empower you. That's why we're exhorted to look away from these others unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith, who will make us strong in the time of weakness. And second, we're helped to faith by living constantly in trouble, the disciplines of life. God puts us into problems because that gives us the opportunity to exercise faith. If you didn't have any problems, how could you exercise faith? If you didn't have any difficulties, how could you ever learn to depend? That's why you can count on trouble. That's encouraging, isn't it? You can count on it. And finally, we exercise faith, we learn faith by encouraging one another in view of the resources God has given to us. Listen to this. I love this passage. Verse 18 of chapter 12. You have not come to what may be touched, anything material, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. That's the law given on Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. <laughs> That's terrifying, isn't it? You haven't come to that. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, the church of God, who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, pagans, communists, atheists, everybody, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new arrangement for living inside you, not outside of you, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Isn't that wonderful? That, doesn't that encourage your faith? And so, in connection with this, we have the last warning. And here it is. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. His voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of what is shaken uh, as of what has been made in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. And I believe we're in those times. When what is, everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. What is this world dependent upon? Governments, politics, uh, 
administration, education, legislation. All these things are the fundamentals of history. The things that men have reckoned on, rested on, and uh, counted on to keep human life going on earth. But every one of them is something that can be shaken. And we're facing the times when God is going to allow everything to be shaken that can be shaken. That's everything visible. But what can't be shaken? Well, he tells us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom of God, the rule of God in our hearts, the right of Jesus Christ to be Lord within us can never be shaken. And that's what's being tested today so that all the phony is being exposed. I've never seen a time when more uh, people who apparently seem to be strong, virile Christians have fallen away and have renounced the faith than in our present day. The young man who designed this building, who was ordained to the ministry here on this platform, was a graduate of the same seminary that I'm a graduate of. I just received word a couple of weeks ago has renounced his Christian faith, turned away, refused to acknowledge Jesus Christ any longer. The things that cannot be shaken will remain. And that which is based on the phony and the untrue will crumble and fall. All right, that's the book of Hebrews. Let's read together the 20th and 20... First verses of chapter 13, because this sums up this letter and gives us the word of encouragement we need in the face of perilous times. If you have a revised standard version, turn to it and we'll read it together. Let's stand and we'll let this be the concluding word of the service, because it's a prayer and a blessing all in one. You have it? All right, let's read. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.